right. Well, we are back in the book of Mark again. Um, this is the 11th. We're getting in today into the 11th chapter as we continue our consecutive expository series. Um, uh, expository means pulling out the nuggets, digging into the text, finding out what there is there to understand in terms of, of theology and understand in terms of application. Uh, and uh, so we're trying to pull the scriptures, let the scriptures speak uh, as we seek to expound it. And now we're entering, finally, the third part of Mark's book. We've gone through the first part, which was more about Jesus' identity and his miracles being established and improving his identity. And then there was a bridge, what we call the Markan Hinge, of other events that are taking place. And now we just completed that part and we're going to the third part of the book, the final part of Mark, the last section of Mark's gospel. And interestingly, this last section, Mark does a lot of compressing. He doesn't go into as much detail as some of the other gospel writers, but he gets to the really important stuff. And now he's compressing the last third of his book into one single week, the week of Passover. And that last seven days of Jesus' life here on earth until <laughs> that event that we celebrate in Easter time happened. Our scripture reading comes to us from Mark chapter 11 and verses 1 through 11. You can follow along uh, on the screen or your Bibles uh, or uh, your device, uh, whatever way. And there's also hymnals, I mean, uh, uh, scripture uh, Bibles in your pews as well. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go in the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and sat on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers, the flower fades, and God's word always will remain and stand forever. 
Let's once again ask his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, once again, we cannot see light without your light. We are deaf and blind. Lord, to what you would have us understand unless you, Lord, send the Spirit fresh to do the purpose for which you sent him and left him here for us until Jesus returns and comes again to complete all things. Father, without the Holy Spirit, we will not profit from the word today. So once again, we ask that you would come forgiving the sins of the one who would seek to open your word and proclaim it. They are many. We would see Jesus in him only, the king that has come and is coming. And we pray in his name. Amen. One of the uh, Christian groups that I uh, have a, uh, somewhat of a fondness for, I'm not crazy about every Christian group that's out there, and, and you know, you would expect that in anything. I don't like all the, all the secular music I listen to, and I certainly don't like all the, the Christian music that I listen to. Everybody has preferences. We know that. Uh, but I happen to like some of their, uh, uh, this group's music, the Newsboys, and uh, they have a particular song. That's exactly what you see there on the screen. The title of this morning's message, The King is Coming. Let me just share with you the first uh, four lines or kind of the introduction. Um, It starts out, make a way for, make a way for, make a way for the king, the king is coming. And that really does set the stage for what transpires in our scripture reading today that we commonly refer to as the triumphal entry of Jesus. Now, they are right when the newsboys say the king is coming. And they have probably, if you look at the text of the whole song, they have in mind the second coming of Jesus. And indeed, the king is coming again, a second time and a final time to make all things and renew all things, to judge heaven and earth and to make all things new. But we mustn't miss the importance and misunderstand the important things that Mark wants us to see about the king that was coming into David's royal city on that first Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago. The king on that very day, if you had been there in space and time history, you would have seen the true king of Israel coming into the holy city. Now the week begins with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Actually, it doesn't. He's been there for quite a while. He's already been doing all kinds of things, healings, and he has done the most miraculous thing so far of all of his miracles. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. But he's been basically kind of sequestered mostly up on the mountain of Olives in Bethany where his friends are, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, And he's kind of staying out except for certain excursions into the city. But the fame of Jesus is continuing to grow. The city is abuzz. Why? Specifically because this is the week of Passover. Remember Jesus was in Jericho last week and now he's gone up to Jerusalem. And Mark condenses that. It was actually, they had gone up and was hanging around and doing these things that were in continuing to spread his fame. But on this particular day, he decides to come down from 
the Mount of Olives from Bethany and come into the city on what we call Palm Sunday. The city was abuzz because it was Passover. That was normal. But at that point in time in Jerusalem, because it was the feast when all the people of Israel were to come to those three feasts a year, and the Passover was the biggest of them, and Jerusalem's wall, uh, uh, company or, or, or multitudes, the size, the people, the numbers, would have swelled to probably three times the normal size of the city of Jerusalem. And it was already tight and packed. Traditionally, we call it his entry into the holy city, the triumphal entry. And all four gospel writers record that. You know it's pretty significant when all four of them record it. Now, they bring their own individual perspectives, and Mark is different. You're going to see Mark is not focusing on some of the same things or is some of the brighter and joyful things as much as Mark and, uh, I mean, uh, John and and Matthew do. Um, So, as I told you, Mark condenses some things, and he gets right to the real point here today. But again, his story and the way he tells it is different, and it focuses on different things. Now, what's the outline for today? Well, we've got three Ps. Here they are. The preparations, the procession, and the peculiar ending. <laughs> the preparations, so there's going to be some preparations made, getting ready for something big and significant. Then there's going to be the procession down into Jerusalem. And then there's this very strange and peculiar ending in verse 11. Let's look in and dig in to the the first one, the preparations. Now, before the entourage starts the half-mile journey, it wasn't but a half a mile. It had to be pretty close because Jews couldn't travel very far on the Sabbath. And so, this is Sunday, and so they were were starting the half-mile journey to Jerusalem. Jesus sends two of his disciples to go make an interesting preparation. And uh, you, you heard me read that in response. That Jesus basically says, go find this colt, this donkey. Find this donkey. And I want you to basically secure it and bring it to me. Now, everywhere Jesus has gone, remember, everywhere he's gone, he's been what? On foot. Everywhere Jesus has gone, all over Galilee, all over Israel, he's walking, he's hoofing it. Jesus has gone on foot. But now he decides to upgrade his transportation mode. But instead of getting a full-size Audi, he ends up with a small-size, requesting a small-size Toyota. A donkey. A donkey! We know it's a donkey. Actually, here it's called, and Mark, a colt. But... Both uh, the other gospel writers make it clear that it is a donkey. We don't think too much of donkeys, but actually they were pretty significant in Israel's time. David had ridden a donkey also into the kingdom. So here is the request that Jesus makes or tells the disciples to make in his behalf. This request has many hyperlinks. You know what a hyperlink is? You go, you're on a web page, and you see that it's in blue, and you click it. Well, it jumps you and takes you someplace else. That's what this is. Mark's gospel and John's and all all their gospel writers, they're giving you a lot of hyperlinks to Israel's biblical history. 
and telling you about things that may not mean much to me and you reading them now in the 21st century, but they had great, it would make them immediately think back, oh yeah, I know how that story got started. I know how that tradition happened. One of those hyperlinks was Zechariah 9.9. Listen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. They immediately went back to that and thought, Man, what a day this is. This is all coming to fulfillment now. Jesus was conscientiously fulfilling this prophecy. That's why everything about the details, the circumstances, his sovereign plan and purpose before eternity was being worked out in every detail of what happened this day. The prophecy was well known among the people, as I said, who were waiting for their coming king. They they knew they just were waiting for the clues to fill in. They knew also that no one could ride the king's horse or donkey. You did not go there. You didn't even go. That's why Jesus specifically says, go, get that donkey. Nobody's ridden him. Never. Because he was being prepared and saved for the king. But what if the donkey owner, the Toyota owner, What if that person was a little oversensitive about having his ride borrowed? (laughs) You know, what if I had sent somebody, uh, sent Harold to go uh, uh, over here to Bill and uh, borrow Bill's uh, uh, car? Uh, I don't, Bill might not be too quick to give the keys to Harold to bring back to me. But Mark here uses a very interesting word. In referring to Jesus, he uses the word kurios. Often translated, most often, Lord. It can mean teacher. It can mean um, revered one. It can mean um, just often master. Maybe that's the simplest way to do it. Lord, uh, master. But it also can be rendered another way. And Mark does it here. Actually, it's Jesus himself that does it. The second way in which it can be used is sovereign Lord and King. So what here Mark is doing in respect to Jesus, and I can say it's actually Jesus that says, tell him the Lord has need of it. He's basically saying, tell them that the sovereign Lord, the King of the Jews, requires this donkey. And when they hear that, they're like, okay. Hey, don't, don't, don't worry about bringing it back anytime soon. Keep as long as you want to. Even though Jesus said, oh, we'll send it back as soon as I'm through with it. He was Lord. They realized they were in the presence of not just some normal rabbi. Now, the procession is in verses 7 through 10. What preparations, t- uh, take with, with the preparations taken care of, it was time for the procession. Time for the parade. Time for things to really get excited And the route that Jesus would have taken into the city would have gone through, first of all, Bethany, which, by the way, means the house 
of sorrows. And then it would have gone down the ridge to Bethpage that was between there and and Jerusalem. And Bethpage is the city of or house of unripened figs. Now keep that in mind uh, for next week. Unripened figs. But they would have gone from Bethany down the hill on the ridge to Bethpage and then turned and started going down, down to the city of Jerusalem being able to see the city from afar, and then it would have gone through, the, passed through the Kidron Valley, where we find the um, Garden of Gethsemane, and they would have then gone up the hillside to enter Jerusalem's eastern gate, the famous Golden Gate, the one the Muslims blocked up many, many centuries ago. As if somehow to make sure that the Messiah of the Christians, if somehow he tried to come back through that gate, uh, that he would not be able. What, what a foolish, silly hope that they they think that's going to stop the King of all glory. That's going to stop the God of the universe from. I uh, think some brick and mortar something is going. To, you know, it's just it's absurd. But let me give you a quick glimpse at that. When we were in the Holy Land many years ago, thanks to someone that helped us get there, um, I think Paul's got some slides for us. Uh, that's up around the area of Bethany. And, then, uh, and uh, it's high up on the Mount of Olives. Next one, Paul. And that's starting to come down. Would have, uh, And that's the, the a church that's there now, kind of the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives. That's looking back as we, are, we went this road, and we came down the path to the, just like Jesus would have taken. Uh, next one, please. And uh, you can see there the holy city, uh, now the, the mosque, of course, but that's the, where the temple mount was at that time. And you could see the whole city of Jerusalem. Jesus would have gone down very similar path heading down into the Kidron Valley. Next one, please. And this is walking, the next one. Uh, maybe. Okay, this is walking through the Kidron Valley, about to come out on the other side. Next one, Paul. And there you see my wife, Louise, looking up uh, to Jerusalem. Those are not the same gates that were there in that day, of course, but that is the Golden Gate, the eastern gate through which Jesus would pass. And I have one more uh, slightly enlargement of that, I believe. Yeah, there you go. All right, thank you, Paul. Um, so, that was where Jesus was going. That's how the entourage would, was making its way to that destination. Now, here's the real important question. Why was there so much messianic fever at this particular time? Almost a level that had not ever, ever been seen in the history of Israel. Why? Well, just think of a few things. Number one, it's Passover. You don't need anything but to get a party started, but just have Passover. That was a big, big deal anyway. People are already psyched, jazzed up. But now you have people knowing about Jesus from all over. And people have come from all over, and they've seen some of these people eyewitness. The fame of Jesus has spread everywhere. His miracles And particularly now, you add to that the very resurrection of a dead man four days in the tomb. That is an act that God could do. And everybody knows it. But some people are angry about it. But the people are just ecstatic. They're saying, surely the time of our redemption is here. 
And then you add to that one more important piece of Jewish history. Can't go into the details, but the Jews had been subjugated many times in their history. And even when they got to return from Babylon, they eventually were controlled by the Greeks. Antiochus Epiphany destroyed their temple, uh, uh, butchered pigs in the temple, holy temple of God. And they were constantly under the rule of foreign oppressors. But they tried many times to throw that yoke off. And successfully they did in the time of the Maccabeans. Judas Maccabean was Maccabee was a rebel, a zealot, if you will, and ultimately he got a victory over the um, the uh, Syrian the Syrians. And in the process of doing that, when he came to the city, he came to the Mount of Olives. He knew his Bible too. He knew that prophecy of Zechariah nine nine, and he went there and he got a colt. And he sat on that colt and wrote it down in the city according to tradition. And the people just went bonkers. They went ecstatic. They were finally going to get the yoke of the Syrians off of them. Now you put all that in their mind that they know of. It's buzzing in their head. And what they see happening now with Jesus, this is the second coming of the Maccabean. This is Jesus acting like Judas, Judas Maccabee. And they're saying, back then, it was so great. Look at what Judas did in freeing us from the Syrians and their oppression. Now, Jesus is going to come and do the same thing, but in greater extent. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to finish all of our oppressors. Salvation has finally come. And you see why? (laughs) They were going so crazy, excited about what Jesus there that day. Salvations from the Assyrian, salvation from the Assyrians then, and from the Romans now. That was their hope. The crowds knew the appropriate scripture to chant. Also, notice again verses nine and ten. Just look there again, verses nine and ten. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now this was likely an antiphonal, you know what antiphonal is. One starts, the other responds. That's what we do in responsive readings. What leader leads and then everybody else responds. That's antiphonal. And this was likely an antiphonal chant between those in front of Jesus and those in the rear. And one side, one group was saying one thing about the salvation that they saw materializing right before their eyes, or at least they thought, in the way they thought. This is how it would have maybe, one scholar suggested, this is how it may have been done. The first group would have said, Hosanna! And the second group in the back would have said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. And then the first group would start again, Hosanna in the highest. I remember many years ago um, on a mission trip doing a a round. Uh, It was called Christ Our Passover. I would still love to find some way to musically do it. Got to have a lot of people to really make this thing rock. But uh, uh, basically, Christ Our Passover, that's the first stanza somebody starts off with that and then in the middle there are these two stanzas and that the next group the next group picks up 
And it goes like this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And repeats that again. And then the other group joins in. Hosanna in the highest. And then it goes on, repeats that. And this is going on intimately back and forth. It is a unbelievably powerful thing to experience. Uh, it's just, it's just, an, it's something like that is what this was. Now you see, Mark sees though with Gentile eyes. He knows that everybody doesn't have this background, this experience. How, how in the world would a Roman, remember, he wrote this for the people of Rome, for Romans, for Gentiles. How would they look at this scene and what would they make of it? And it's filled with irony. Listen to what Philip Yancey says about this. It really gives you a picture of what it must have looked like to Gentile eyes. The triumphal entry has about an aura, an aura of ambivalence. And what stands out to me is the slapstick nature of the affair. Imagine the Roman, a Roman officer galloping up to check on the disturbance. What's going on here? And he's attended processions in Rome where they do it right. The conquering general sits in the chair of gold and the stallions strain on the reins and the wheels spike and flashing in the sunlight. And behind him, officers in polished armor displaying the banners of captured from vanquished armies. At the rear comes a ragtag procession of slaves and prisoners in chains, living proof of what happens to those who defy Rome. In Jesus' triumphal entry, the adoring crowd is made up of a ragtag procession. The lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. And when the officer looks for the object of their attention, he spies a forlorn figure weeping. Mark doesn't tell us this. The other gospel writers do. Jesus was weeping as he headed up into the gate of Jerusalem because he knew what was going to happen because they had rejected their Messiah. Riding on no stallion or chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey, on a borrowed coat draped across its back serving as a saddle. What manner of king is this? <laughs> this is your king? People today still respond that way. This is your king? A king that brings peace through weakness? We understand peace through strength. There's a time for that. But this king was coming for a different purpose. They had one thing right, though. He is the king. He is the true king. But he's not here to purge Israel from foreign domination, but from their sin. As someone recently has said wisely, we don't have a skin problem in the world. We have a sin problem. And it, and it Cuts through every hue. Our sin is the problem. 
There's a popular slogan in our day that says, no justice, no peace. My friends, there is only one who can deliver both justice and peace. And you know how he did it? Not the way we are told you have to bring about peace. No, he himself took the justice of God in his wrath that we deserved and made peace for us through the cross. That's the gospel. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he was coming to do. The only way that there will ever be justice and peace, they will kiss in Jesus. They will come together only in him. And any other attempt to find a way without him is folly and it is doomed to failure. However well-intentioned it may or may not be. My friends, finally, there's this peculiar ending in verse 11. After all the excitement, the caravan continues all the way into the courts of the temple where Jesus receives a hero's welcome, right? No? No! (laughs) Not at all. Listen to verse 11 again. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. When they got to the temple, only the 12 disciples of Jesus were there with him. He was in the temple by himself, all alone, with them. What a a strange thing. What a peculiar ending to the triumphal entry of the king. Where had all the people gone? John tells us, that helps something understand that. John tells us as all these other people were coming up the mountain, up the, to Jerusalem to go through the gate, all those people that he had been bringing along with him and had been following him, there were other people there too. And they were coming out. And some of them were coming out to see what was going on. And some of them had heard, but there were a bunch of people in the mob and they were coming out to instigate. That's how mobs work. There's always the people that you see and then there's the ones that are doing all the stuff behind the scenes. And there were people that were coming and denigrating Jesus and calling him an apostle. That mob, those two groups met. And often as the case does, people that had a lot of enthusiasm, before you know it, they're all gone. Sunshine patriots, they're gone. And Jesus and his disciples are all alone. Now, Mark's account focuses less on the joyful reception and more on the building conflict with the temple and its religious system. Mark is setting the stage, folks, for a showdown. A showdown at the OK Corral. A a serious life and death situation. Jesus' procession is not to Jerusalem per se, but to the temple specifically. He's coming 
to the temple. We're going to find out more about that next week. Jesus enters triumphantly, but he's not received triumphantly. As we will see. He's not received by the religious leaders and the religious system of his day. Quite the contrary. So in the moment of all this messianic hope fulfilled, everybody's thinking, this is the day we've been waiting for. Nothing happens. It all goes... But Mark is telling us that Jesus is here for a very different reason. He's in the temple. He's come to the temple intentionally. But he's not here looking for accolades. He's not making this entry for getting more and more followers and praise. He's here to make assessments. To make an assessment of the temple and everything in it and what it's doing and what it's not doing. Jesus isn't gawking in awe of the temple. He's measuring it. Do you remember in the Old Testament? Daniel? Daniel 5, 25-28. Remember when Babylon, the mighty Babylon, thought we're invincible. Nobody can touch us. God had that writing hand on the wall. And this is what it said. And this is the writing that is inscribed, Mani, Mani, Tikalu, Parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mani, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You ain't measuring up, Babylon. Paris, your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. They were weighed in the balance, and that's what Jesus was doing. He was weighing the whole temple reality in its present form as to whether it was the house of God or not any longer. Something big is happening. Jesus enters the temple alone, and having sized it up, he leaves Bethany with his disciples. But a storm is brewing. A storm is brewing. It's like that scene from the first Terminator when at the end, and it's driving the thunder in the mountains. And you hear this, and you know something is, this ain't over. Something big is about to go down. A storm is brewing and the king is coming. You just wait and see next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will once again give us now ability to see and understand your word. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us, Lord, to realize that you bring about, Lord, glorious things, but not in the way the world does. Your way is different, and it's better, and it's what we need. Father, help us continue today as we feast upon you, our living bread. And Lord, we pray that you would bless now as we prepare for this table. In Jesus' name, amen.